Hello everyone, welcome back to the History Hotline. My name is Deanna Lynn Cook and today is episode 19. Today we will be looking at the New Cross fire, which actually happened 40 years ago um, today on the 18th of January, um, if you are listening when this episode has just been released. Unfortunately, um, this episode will be a tragic episode. Um, the New Cross fire was obviously a great tragedy. If you don't know anything about it, then this is a content warning that it will be quite upsetting. Um, there will be instances of, of death um, and obviously fire. So please um, take this episode, you know, with that pre-warning. I know that the world right now is not the nicest place, so I wouldn't want to add to to that trauma um, if you're not feeling uh, in the best way at this point. I just wanted to say um, thank you for sticking with me in my longer than planned break, I will say, from the History Hotline. Um, life really is is, is lifing right now, um, but I'm happy to be back and I really hope that you enjoy the next episodes that we have for you um, in the co- upcoming months. We have quite a lot planned. Um, there's lots to learn, to be honest. The more I sit down and think about, you know, what I'm going to do for each episode, the more I realise that you know, in these 18 episodes, we've barely touched the surface. There's just so much more to learn. So, you know, if you want to stick along for the ride um, and keep tuning in, I would be more than grateful. Um, And without further ado, I want to get into this episode. So we're going to be talking about the New Cross Fire, as I said, and I thought I'd start something different with some poetry. We've got Linton Kwesi Johnson um, with a poem about the New Cross Fire. I'll talk about him a little bit more after, but I thought this is a perfect introduction to what happened um, in New Cross on the 18th of January, 1981. First they're coming and they're going in and out of the party. The dubbing and the rubbing and the rocking to the rhythm. The dancing and the skanking and the party really swinging. Then the crash and the bang and the flame starts to drunk. The heat and the smoke and the people start to choke. The screaming and the crying and the dying and the fire. We didn't know I said it could have happened, you know. Anytime, anywhere. Far don't it happen to we and the Asians, them already. But in spite of all that, everybody was still shocked when we get the cool facts about that brutal attack. When we find out about the fire over New Cross. About the innocent life, them will last. About the physically scared, the mentally marred, and them relatives who take it so hard. And you know, although plenty of people were surprised, they know said them kind of thing there could have happened to we in a this year Great Britain, in a London today. And a few get frightened, and a few get subdued. Almost everybody had to sympathize. With the loved ones of the injured and the dead. For this year massacre, make we come to realize it could have been me, it could have been you, or one of few we picnic them who fell victims to the terror by night. But wait, you know, remember how the whole of Black Britain did rock with grief, how the whole of Black Britain did turn a melancholy blue. Not the possible blue of the murderer's eyes, but like the smoke of gloom and that cold Sunday morning. But stop. You know, remember how the whole of Black Britain turned a fiery red. Not the callous red of the killer's eyes, but red with rage like the flames of the fire. 
So that was Linton Kwesi Johnson, um, a Jamaican dub poet and also an activist um, who was part of the Windrush generation and came to England in 1963 um, and is a renowned, world-renowned poet. Um, his his work and his, I think, social commentary and critique of Britain, racism um, and race relations in Britain have been instrumental to my understanding personally of, of black British history and I would definitely encourage you to listen to his work listen to the rest of that poem it's called um, new cross massacre spelt new and then cross c-r-a-s-s and then massacre spelt m-a-s-s-a-k-h um so yeah i would definitely encourage you to listen to more of his work um it's definitely worth listening to so today um if you're listening on the 18th of january is the 40th anniversary of the fire and i thought you know in the wake of of the black lives matter movement um the kind of, I think the prominence and importance of understanding this story is all the more real and relevant. I think the fact that there has been a tragedy similar like Grenfell, whilst, you know, the circumstances are different and the loss of life and, you know, the way it has been remembered and perceived does seem to have similarities. And it's kind of the first thing that comes to mind when I think about this tragedy. Um, Lessons still haven't been learned, so this story needs to be told. Whilst this fire is, I don't personally think, a story of, of, like, you know, we need to figure out who did this so that justice can be done. Like, those lives have been already lost and there isn't really anything that's going to bring them back. I think finding out who did this and why it occurred would bring peace to a lot of families um, and justice, hopefully. I think that is probably one of the less important parts of this story um, and I hope you get that from this episode. I think the response to this fire from British society and the British government really highlights um, race relations at the time and also the lack of care for black lives, which I said is why it's so prominent living in in an era where Black Lives Matter is still seeming to be such a controversial um, statement um, when in no way it should be. So, yeah, I thought firstly we would... We would honour and remember those that had died. Um, 14 people passed away, 13, you know, immediately in the fire, but the 14th person committed suicide um, a few months or years later, I think, um, and there were 56 survivors um, of the fire. It was um, a birthday party, a 16th birthday party, so we are talking about really young young people um, and young children that were in the majority um, killed and injured in this fire. So I thought I'd take um, a clip it from a snippet, sorry, from the one of the anniversaries in 2011. So that would have been the 30th anniversary of of the New Cross fire, where Nubian and Jack um, they created a plaque um, and were commissioned to to make a plaque for the house that the fire took place in, and it was a ceremony to commemorate that event. So I'll read you. Well, someone will be reading out a roll call, and then we will go from there with, with further details. Peter Campbell. Lloyd Hall. Glenton Powell. Rosalind Henry. Patricia Johnson. Jerry Francis. Tony Burbeck. Steve Collins. Owen Thompson. Patrick Cummings. Paul Ruddock, Yvonne Ruddock, Humphrey Brown, Andrew Gooden, rest in peace.
And that extract um, was taken from, as I mentioned, um, the anniversary, 30th anniversary commemorations of the New Cross fire. The man that was reading out the names of those had, that had died was Wayne Haynes. Um, he was a survivor of the New Cross fire. Um, and he speaks in a video. Um, it's a HuffPost video. I think they did um, like a commemoration for it last year. Um, he speaks about his experiences, you know, being in the party and then just smelling smoke and heat and realising that the place was on fire, but realising there were just too many people um, to kind of get out before people started falling from smoke inhalation, from the heat, um, and um, essentially began to die. Um, and then other people tried to, you know, jump from windows um, in order to, to get away from the flames and the heat um, and also died um, from doing so. Um, Wayne Haynes also talks about, you know, his personal experiences. He was he was really seriously injured, he said. Um, and I wanted to include the clip, but I actually felt like it was a bit too graphic. Um, but essentially ended up having 140 skin grafts on his um, face and body, um, he said, when he went in to kind of try and get out the fire um, and to get out of the building. He rubbed his face because he was hot and he just felt his skin like crumbling in his hands. Um, you know, that is the reality of, of fire and how quickly first of all they spread and how tragic they are um and it was interesting I think that he you know I guess so many years on had the strength to still be part of the commemorations for this um maybe that's how he gets his peace or is able to kind of to reconcile with with what occurred because they would have been his his friends that would have been in that fire so the fire happened at number 439 New Cross Road in South London. Sorry for anyone that wasn't sure. Um, you know, I've just been mentioning New Cross, um, as if everybody knows where that is. And the party was to celebrate the 16th birthday of Yvonne Ruddock, who, you know, was having the party at her house um, and unfortunately um, lost her life that night alongside her brother as well. And I think it was two years later that one of the survivors that, um, you know, did manage to obviously survive the fire committed suicide and, and that led to, to 14 deaths in total from this tragedy. A lot of the information that I'm going to give in this podcast are taken primarily from documentaries on the New Cross fire and also two articles in particular, one that was written in 2001, um, so that would have been 20 years after the fire um, by D. Lahiri in The Guardian and then another article that was written this year in 2021, 40 years later, um, by Amma Modin um, and both of those articles I think were quite good and I'll try and link them in the show notes of this podcast um, on Spotify and also on Twitter and Instagram. Um, yeah the articles are, are really good because they have interviews from people that were there from survivors um, and it kind of really sets the scene I think of, of what was happening and what the feeling was not only prior to the fire but also you know in the aftermath which is I think probably quite an important part of this this story as I've mentioned before um so just to set the context you know we're talking about Britain 1981 southeast London in particular and obviously there's a high degree of racial tension in the area and um, that area specifically there were far-right groups including the National Front who were very active in the local area um there were also noise complaints from the party from neighbours about excessive noise and I guess, you know, we can put two and two together and probably assume that the fact that they were black people partying and have a good, having a good time um, was not going down well, necessarily. Now, the community in the area were, in a majority, I would say, black um, and made up of, of people from, you know, the Windrush generation. And so the community 
spirit and the community feel um, in the area, I think is quite important to note. And I think it comes into play when we think about the commemorations that have happened in the the aftermath and the years following. They always centre on community feel, um, not just of black people, but of white people as well um, and different ethnic minorities and groups. So initially, um, because of these kind of racial tensions in the area, police suspicion and other people, you know, in the community and people that heard about it assumed that it had been firebombed um, as a revenge attack or as in like an attempt to stop the noise or just, you know, racist people being racist and taking things to an, you know, an extreme level. Um, There was also a theory that there was a fight that had broken out um, and then a blaze had come from that. Um, it kind of, as I said, I don't want to dwell too much on like what happened because the forensics, you know, have come through and all we know is that the fire um, is most likely to have started inside the building. So, you know, ideas about it being firebombed or fire Molotov cocktails being thrown from the outside, um, are potentially quite inaccurate and it's more likely that a fire started from the inside. However, I think the investigation, it really highlights some of the inequalities in regards to policing, which we don't even need to to readdress, because if you've been listening to these episodes, you know what the police are like, especially the London Metropolitan Police. I'm here for you again. Um, So, yes, the police inquiries and investigations into these this fire because at the time and even to this day no one knows how it started or as many as much as people might have their ideas or theories nothing has been proven and nobody has been charged or found guilty or arrested for it even um, at this point um, in 2021 so you know forensics found out that the fire started in an armchair inside the front room of the property on the early hours of Sunday morning the party started Saturday and went through to Sunday and Eventually, the police ruled out this theory that a fight had taken place. However, in their investigation, in order to rule this out, they were obviously investigating people that were at the party that, you know, could have started a fight inside because obviously you had to be at the party to start a fight inside the party. But obviously, who was at the party? A majority of black people, young black boys and young black girls. And, you know, the police just can't seem to speak in any kind of productive or positive way to black people and it was no different in the 80s and so their investigation was harassment essentially as usual it was um, brutal and it was harassing especially on people that have just survived a fire as intense and as tragic as the new crossfire and that is I think probably a key takeaway that we will be discussing in in quite a lot of depth in this podcast whilst I think a lot of articles you might read about um the the fire and I think a lot of the documentaries then tend to focus on the survivors and their stories and I think they are so important um but I don't think this podcast is a space for that we are going to discuss the kind of investigation and the aftermath and the protests that followed and the inquest and then the response by British society and the British state the kind of main theory that the police is line of inquiry Um, and questioning was leading to was this idea that a fight had broken out um, in the house and then it had started a fire either accidentally or on purpose Um, that was the police's theory and they decided that it was a group of boys at the party and so you know the boys that were involved they believed were key to their inquiry so Robert McKenzie who was a friend of uh, the Ruddock family and he had just lost you know his friend friends 
in the fire. Um, he had survived. He was one of the bo- boys called for questioning. Um, and he spoke in one of the articles that I mentioned before. And he said that, you know, they refused to listen to me when I told them that there wasn't a fight. They had their version of events and I felt like I had to go along with them. In the end, I caved in and told them what I thought they wanted. Um, eight boys who had been at the party made statements to the police testifying that a fight had taken place. However, the local community were convinced that the fire had been a racist attack um, and they were angered and really hurt by the fact that this investigation was kind of blaming, you know, the people that were the victims of of the fire and losing their friends and being physically and mentally traumatised and scarred. Um, I think, you know, the fact that the black community... Um, this particular black community um, and the police, their relationship is clearly very hostile. This is only 10 years after the Mangrove Nine situation, shall we call it. Um, If you haven't listened to that episode, off you go. (laughs) Please have a listen. I think it really does um, exemplify, you know, police dealings with black communities and black people at the time. Um, But also another element that we haven't really touched on so much in these episodes so far, which I think I need to talk about more, is media hostility um, and the kind of role that the media played in turning public opinion towards a certain narrative in this kind of story, I guess. Robert McKenzie, um, he goes on to say that he remembers the police interrogating him like he was a criminal. Um, His experience was terrifying um, from, you know, being at that party. Um, And then he said it was just made worse by the kind of questioning at the hands of the police he said they gave me no respect and I felt like I had I had been arrested not asked to share information they didn't want to listen to the truth so whilst he wasn't arrested he was just brought in for questioning which is kind of voluntary thing I believe and he said there had been no fight you know he went along with that line of questioning because he felt like it was what they wanted to hear and they didn't really care about the truth and obviously I can can't really imagine the trauma um but I can imagine the fact that, you know, if you were maybe alone as a young man, a young black man in Britain um, in a police station answering their questions, you might just say what they wanted to hear as opposed to the truth because you just wanted to get out there because really and truly your priority at that point is not speaking to the police. Um, There was basically this assumption that there was some illegal illegal goings on at the party and then that had caused the fire they didn't believe it was literally just a group of children having a 16th birthday party um I don't know if all my listeners are 16 yet but you know if you had a party for your 16th it was just kind of young fun um and a good time you're celebrating (laughs) you know you don't really have that much going on when you think of life in the grand scheme of things 16 is a pretty carefree age um but not for these children um One of the most harrowing stories of this, um, even more harrowing story, um, is the story of, like, the Gooding family, which um, came up in my research. Um, There was an older brother, Richard, sorry, who dropped his three siblings at the party um, and then left uh, to to go on about his his evening. Um, His 11-year-old sister, Denise, and his 17-year-old brother, David, were both injured. David, seriously, um, but they survived. Um, his 14-year-old brother, Andrew Gooding, passed away in the fire. Um, So that family lost a son and a brother, and his parents, shortly after the fire, received a letter in their post that said, and please excuse my language, but how glad I was when 13 niggers went up in smoke. And I hate saying that word, but I think it was definitely needed there for 
the emphasis on I think the magnitude of how disgusting people were in the aftermath of this tragedy can you imagine losing a son a brother such a young life and receiving a piece of mail that said something like that in your post um he's this is so Richard um Gooding is speaking in this interview and he says we were devastated we just lost our brother um, but that was the sort of thing that was going on. So assuming other families were maybe receiving letters like this, which also adds into the theory of the idea that, you know, this was a racist attack because <laughs> the families are essentially being goaded um, and, you know, harassed and receiving mail like this um, shortly after. Um, you know, Andrew Gooding was only 19 at the time um, and he said, you know, we went to the police station and a lot of the time they were just questioning us like we were the criminals rather than victims. So, you know, his family who have gone through all that and then on top of that are receiving mail, such as the one I read out earlier, then are not getting supported by the police and the relevant services. And I think that really, really does highlight um, what happened in the aftermath for so many families. Before we get into the community response for the um, New Cross fire, um, and also, I don't know if you've noticed, I've kind of used the term New Cross Massacre and New Cross Fire quite interchangeably. Um, it's often known as both, either one or the other. Um, massacre, obviously, intending to to define something that was a deliberate killing of a group of people. Um, and, you know, in, in many people's eyes, that is exactly what this was. Um, I think it's known more as a New Cross Fire in media publications and on the news. That's what it tends to be referred to as. I definitely think within community, um, massacre is is a more appropriate term given. And as we heard, Linton Quezzy Johnson, that's what he named his poem as well. And whilst he wrote that in 1985 um, and not, you know, many years later, as we are speaking 40 years after, um, I think it's just important to note that. So I thought before we go into, you know, the black community's response and, um, you know, what that entailed and what that was, I thought we'd just hear from Janine Ruddock, who is Paul Ruddock's daughter, who died in the fire. Um, he was aged 22 and the older brother of Yvonne Ruddock, whose 16th birthday it was. So essentially, um, the woman that you're about to hear speak is the niece of Yvonne Ruddock, whose birthday party it was. She was not alive at the time of the fire um, because her mom had literally left the party um, carrying her. She was um, pregnant at the time. Um, but she had left the party literally just before the blaze um, started. And so her life and her, her unborn baby's life was spared. But I thought it would be interesting to hear from her because she raises some very interesting points, I think, regarding the fire and her spirit in regards to, to this tragedy. I'm Janine Ruddock. I'm Paul Ruddock's daughter. Um, my mum has lived with this for 30 years. My dad died on her 22nd birthday while she was five months pregnant with myself. The only reason that we weren't at the party is because my dad got my mum a cab and said that it's time for you to go, luckily. And it was only about two hours before the party, before the fire, sorry. This is the first time in 30 years that I've been able to speak about this. It's nice that finally this house is commemorative. Because I went to that school over there, Adi and Stano, and they never breathed a word of this fire to me. In your whole time at school? In my whole time of going to a school across the road and never ever breathed a word of this fire. That top window was my dad's bedroom. The second window was my aunt's bedroom. That 
was her 16th birthday party and that's the window that she jumped from and lost her life. But you know, we've got this plaque and that's something. And I'm very proud, I'm very proud. I wish it was here, you know, 20 years ago when I was going to school, I wish that this was here. You know, I'll bring my daughters to come and see, see this plaque here, you know. It's hard, but we'll carry on fighting. I'll never give up. I'll never give up until I find out what happened. Never. And that was Janine Ruddock, who was the daughter of one of the victims um, who died in the New Crossfire. First of all, I know we're, this is a history podcast and we're obviously studying history, but this is quite a recent history, only 40 years ago. Don't you think it's so like strange that you know we've got this audio of her, it's a video on YouTube, um, and this is her clear as day. This is only 10 years ago. This is, you know, 2011. And so to think that, you know, in these modern and recent contemporary times, like that we're living in right now, there are people that are literally living with these traumas um, from from the events of that night. These histories are clearly so recent. And I think a really important point that Janine brought up in her um, in the extract we just listened to was this idea that, you know, she went to a school essentially across the road from where this fire occurred and she was not taught about that in school. And I think that's not only just bad because that's just another example of like a key moment in black British history being erased um, and not being spoken about. But I think also in regards to local history, um, maybe not me growing up in Birmingham, I, I might not have access to this history although I definitely believe that I should have and we should have been taught things like this and we should in the present tense as well however the fact that this is a local history of the New Cross area and um, Janine has obviously gone to school essentially across the road and it was never mentioned and that's her personal family history at this point um, and the fact that she has gone through her schooling education Maybe not believing it's not important because she obviously um, is well aware of the importance of it. But, you know, it not being taught and it not holding that space in an educational classroom or a place of learning, it does suggest that it's a not an important history and it's not something that is worth learning. And we all know that it very much is. Um, we haven't gone into even the protests and the aftermath yet. So we're going to get into that really quickly because I don't want this podcast to, to have you here all day. Um, but I think key points are raised by Janine um, and also, you know, the fact that Nubian and Jack had to, to create a campaign in order to have this plaque to commemorate the building that it happened in is obviously monumental um, and only happened in 2011, which is only 10 years ago. Um, so, again, another very recent development for this particular history. So, as a result of this tragedy, um, a meeting was held on the 20th of January. 300 people attended, um, and according to an interview with um, John LaRose, who was the founder of New Beacon Books, um, a publishing house in Finsbury Park, um, and he also published the book The New Cross Massacre Story, um, there were a lot of anti-racist groups present at the meeting. The Alliance was one of them. The Panthers, of course, we've mentioned before. The Black Youth Movement, the Race Today Collective and Bogle Overture Publications, who um, that was started by Eric and Jessica Huntley um, in uh, London as well. Um, it was another black owned publishing house. I think it was like one of the first along with New Beacon Books by John LaRose. And so the meeting established the New Cross Massacre Committee, which was a fact finding commission and it interviewed witnesses and also ensured that the survivors had legal support. So again, doing similar community work of what was done during the Mangrove 9 situation. 
um, and I guess providing the things that you know these people needed that weren't being provided for by the state um, which in my eyes um, should have been provided for by the state um the meeting was held at the Moonshot Club in Newcross. Um, on there was another meeting. Sorry, twenty fifth of January, a week after the fire, more than a thousand people attended, and I th- think this really just highlights the how monumental and how big this was, and the outcry um, from from people following this um, tragedy. Um, you know, the New Cross Massacre Action Committee was set up, chaired by John LaRose, who we've mentioned before, and it organised weekly meetings in New Cross. Um, it saw increasing participation, um, you know, as the police investigation announced at that point that there was no evidence of arson and the fire was believed to be accidental. Obviously, um, you know, members of the community were completely outraged by this. If you are aware of or yourself receiving hate mail that more black people should have died in the fire only 13 um you know why would you ever believe that would be an accident um it's very clear um what it could have been and so i think that's where you kind of see the kind of cultural impact of the fire you have um the poem from linton Kwesi johnson which we heard before um benjamin zephaniah um he um created a poem as well which you'll hear a song sorry at the at the end of this episode um and also another thing that came out of it was the action committee um organized the black people's day of action for march the second and 20,000 people marched over a period of eight hours from Fordham Park to Hyde Park, carrying placards, which said things like, 13 dead, nothing said, no police cover-up, and blood I go run if justice no come. So basically, you know, this is a black community, um, predominantly of the Windrush generation, and they are fighting for reform, they're fighting for change, and they are fighting for justice for their children and the children of the community that had simply died in this fire um and they wanted answers they wanted to know why it had happened and why then the police are harassing other members of the community and young people that were victims of this fire nothing was making sense like when i look back at this like the police reaction to it it obviously makes perfect sense in a system of white supremacy um to me obviously that's very clear but rationally speaking this doesn't make sense that your line of inquiry is targeting people that are victims of this fire It doesn't make sense in any way, shape or form. So, you know, if you're expecting this march to have gone off without a hitch, you're obviously going to be wrong because black people marching is clearly a threat to Britain and it has to be over-policed in every way, shape or form. So, the march is described as overwhelmingly peaceful. The Sun newspaper, on the other hand, ran with the headline, Day the Blacks Ran Riot in London. So as you can see here, the media again playing a wonderful part in the reporting of this story. Um, I also remember a documentary, and I cannot remember the name of it, I was listening to, um, and I think it was Wayne Haynes actually, maybe it was the Huffington Post one, he was basically saying that he was watching the march from his hospital bed in Greenwich Hospital because he was obviously still um, very much burnt from the fire, um, and he said that Um, whether he was talking from other people's um, stories or what he could see on the news. I think it was what he could see on the news was that when they marched along Fleet Street, which is where most of the newspaper um, offices and headquarters are, reporters that would have been writing these stories for the next day to go to print were leaning out their um, windows, shouting racial slurs at the protesters. 
um, and derogatory terminology um, and just abusing them verbally. They were the people that were then going into their offices to write these stories for the next day. And that's why you get, you know, probably articles from The Sun saying the blacks are ran right in London when it was a peaceful protest. Um, other newspapers, you know, gave cursory mentions. Um, none of the reports mentioned um, that the march was actually cut into at Blackfriars Bridge by police. Um, it caused a delay, it caused confusion and it caused frustration and it was seen as an attempt to stop the march. It also isolated some of the march leaders and the stewards from the general public um, who had joined like towards the end of the march. Um, and so obviously, you know, this probably caused confusion. As we've said, it caused um, maybe a little frustration and um, this led to the press again reporting um, hostilely towards the protesters um, and essentially painting it out to be um, some kind of riot, um, which it obviously was not, um, yeah. At the time of the New Cross fire in 1981, Margaret Thatcher was Prime Minister, and I think that really just serves enough. I could probably end that sentence there. I uh, don't really know what I was expecting as a response from her, um, you know, the death of 13 black children. Um, but, you know, I'm going to tell you what it is anyway. Um, so, Agri Burke, who is a retired British psychiatrist um, and the academic who provided like, psychotherapeutic support for the bereaved families, um, he said that most of them remained in a deep state of shock um, throughout the therapy. Um, he said Mrs Thatcher didn't provide any leadership a month after the New Cross um, fire. There was also a fire in Dublin um, and it killed around, I think, 50 people at a club. And the Queen... And the Prime Minister, Margaret Thatcher, expressed condolences quite quickly. That didn't happen for New Cross. Um, that didn't exist. So, you know, 13 essentially children, very young people have died. That is a tragedy. That's a loss of potential. It's a loss of life, you know. And a month later, um, the incident in Dublin occurred, which again, is a tragedy. It's a loss of life, you know. And equally important, life is life, regardless, black or white. We know this. Um, you know, it took Margaret Thatcher five weeks to reply, not to to send condolences, to reply to um, someone called Sybil Phoenix, who had written on behalf of the New Cross families and the community, condemning the failure of the government to reflect the outrage um, of the black community, because obviously there had been a significant loss of life. Um, her disrespect, I think, is just illuminated by... <laughs> The fact that in response to Sybil Phoenix, she doesn't then, you know, pick up the phone or find herself in New Cross um, to send condolences. No one's asking her to apologise. No one's asking her to find the perpetrator herself. You know, just simply condolences from the government. It's just a standard kind of procedure protocol and it's just a kind of human thing to do. Right. Um, she doesn't she doesn't do that. She actually requests Phoenix, Sybil Phoenix, to just pass on her sympathies. No effort to contact the families, no official response um, to New Cross. And that is exactly what proves and highlights and illuminates and emphasises the lack of value placed on, placed on black lives in Britain in the 1980s and even today. The media were largely silent and they supported the view that black people and the black young people in that party had done this to themselves accidentally or on purpose they didn't care they believed there was no no ill you know ill feeling or it couldn't be a racist attack it started from the inside um and they really did not care for the loss of life regardless of how the lives were lost and that's the point i'm trying to make there was 
no kind of feeling, emotion, no condolence, no sympathy from wider British society. And I say that as in, you know, the establishment and the media, not necessarily individual people, because individual people, um, you know, they were definitely there. They were on the marches. They were they were in support, um, despite, you know, them being black or white. Um, the anger is is palatable. It comes across in the music, in the culture that comes out of this. Um, and I just think it's another example of the British state failing black people and just proving and suggesting to us that, black lives don't really matter because you know they don't even deserve kind of space in in the prime minister's brain and i think that is where i'm going to leave this podcast um we will be going out with an outro today um benjamin zephaniah's 13 dead um and it's obviously about um those who are killed in the new crossfire and i just wanted to take the opportunity on the 40th anniversary to say rest in peace to all those that died and may you know peace come onto their families and friends at some point in their lifetimes um, and may justice be done at some point too thank you so much for listening i hope you have a wonderful week and here is benjamin zephaniah with 13 dead we will not forget we must not forget 13 dead that nothing said we will not forget we must not forget no we cannot forget 13 dead that nothing said, we will not forget. Fire, fire, burn young ones in a land and teach new class. How can there be justice when the bombers are the boss? 13 young lives wasted, they are practice way of life. And if you walk the streets, then mark is stab you with a knife. We will not forget, no, we must not forget. 13 dead that nothing said, we will not forget. We must not forget. No, we cannot forget. Thirteen dead and nothing said. We will not forget. Them have no right to bomb us. Them have no right at all. As fire burning new cross, politicians have a ball. Black people will stand firm until the table turn. Black people will stand firm against the ugly fascist world. It's pain and fear to see. It's true reality. You cannot live in fear at night and think that you are free. We all know it's true. What do authorities do? Them don't do nothing. Them don't care. They are bummers too. And we will not forget. No, we must not forget. Thirteen dead and nothing said. We will not forget. We must not forget. No, we cannot forget. Thirteen dead and nothing said. We will not forget. Don't forget. Don't forget. Don't forget. Thank you.